I was walking around campus with a baby strapped to my back. So no one was really thinking she's going to... Yeah, there's a future silk. Yeah, well, this is it. She's going to see this through. (laughs) I think everyone was tending to think, well, uh, you know, you've done your best, but at some stage you're, you're going to have to just throw in the towel because it's going to be too hard. Surely this is just going to be too hard for you. This is You'll Be Hearing From My Lawyer, a conversation series about women's experiences of making a life at the English bar. It's an opportunity for us to speak openly and honestly about the things that we, as women and barristers, think about a lot and should probably speak about more often. I'm your host, Jessica Vandermeer. And on this second episode of my interview with Nyeka Akadulu QC, we speak about how she thrives off adversity how she addresses burnout, and about how having a baby in the second year of law school and a toddler during pupillage really does change everything. My daughter was born on the 3rd of June, and she was the uh, most delightful baby. I know everyone says this about their children, but she was so easy from, you know, within a couple of weeks, she was sleeping throughout the night. She barely cried. She was just really easy. And so even though I didn't know what impact having a baby would have on me, um, because, you know, there's sleepless nights, baby brain, Mm. it seemed to have, in terms of baby brain, it seemed to have the opposite effect because at this point, you know, I've got a, a newborn, but I've also got to study for my exams, you know, yeah. and horrific thing, horrific things like, you know, ex- exams I didn't like in my second year, like things like land law, trusts and equity and those sorts of subjects that I didn't really like. You know, I had to get my head around um, preparing for my exams. So I did that along with having a newborn yeah having having a seven eight week old baby yeah when I look when I sort of look back on it I just think how on earth did I do it but it was just not doing it was not an option yeah because so much I'm quite stubborn and so because there was so much oh you know that's the you know university I was sort of you know by that stage I was the woman with you know who was pregnant and then when I got back to university I was the girl with the baby so I had I felt I had a lot to prove and I had a lot to prove to my family as well so not going back and sitting my exams quite frankly was not an option so I studied throughout the summer you know I I had um, help from my family um, studied throughout the summer and then myself and my daughter went back to Cardiff in the August I rented a room for us to stay in because I think I was there for about two weeks over those two sort of two week periods sitting all the exams so during the uh, during the exams when I was at exams my daughter would go to uh, the nursery then I'd sit my exams pick her up and and so on so I sat my exams in the August passed them all and then uh came back to Cardiff to sit so by then do my final year um later on sort of September October time 
and um, by that time I feel as I felt as though I got into a bit of a stride being being a mother we got into a bit of a routine I I feel I really feel that she helped me a lot because she was such you know she was no trouble at all as a baby so it made it made all the difference in terms of me being able to get on with what I needed to do so I, I really felt it was a joint effort yeah it sounds like you two were a team we were literally a team from the word go and she she made it she made I don't want to say she made it easy for me because it of course it wasn't easy um and I don't think there's any way I'd be able to do it now uh you know being my mid-40s but when you're young you know by that stage how old was I when I had I had her when I was 24 25 and when you're in your 20s you're fearless that sort of that didn't really phase me it was just a case of I just need to get on with this um and and that's exactly what I did but by that stage going into my final year I'm being told right well now having this degree you can become a barrister becoming a barrister was uh, that appealed to me more than being going down the solicitor route because I really liked advocacy and I really wanted to you know appear in front of a jury and so by the third year it was time to start applying to bar school the BBC um, which I did and I stayed in Cardiff because it was just it was just cheaper to live there and so that suited me and I was settled there Bailey was at nursery Bailey's my daughter she was at nursery and it just made sense to stay there because you know, obviously no one thought I would be able to not only being a single mother and um, not having family around but also being a single mother in uh, such such a so far away from my family being in Cardiff um, but it was still you know, all hands on deck, everyone still helped me. There were times uh, where I would, you know, maybe have a week off um, and my sister would drive to Heathrow and I would drive down the M4 and meet her at Heathrow and then I'd hand my daughter over and my daughter would stay with my family for a week. So that gave me a bit of time off. And then, you know, my sister would drive back up to Heathrow to the M4 and then I'd drive down and pick her up. So that was that was really helpful. And that enabled me to sort of reset and um, have a bit of a break. But, um, you know, as I say, she was just such an she's just such an easygoing baby that it, it made everything so much easier than otherwise would be the case. And one of the things that, that, that I heard you describe was the fearlessness that comes with being in your 20s. Yeah. Uh, knowing what you know now, wh- what do you think you got right? Do you think that that fearlessness is really what, what pushed you to just say this, you know, this is gonna, this is my plan come hell or high water? Oh, absolutely. And I think when you are young, you you have, you can have that sort of attitude that I was I was being told and and I don't I don't think people were saying this to be unkind it wasn't coming from a place of unkindness it was just reality you know I was walking around 
campus with a baby strapped to my back. So no one was really thinking she's going to... Yeah, there's a future silk. Yeah, well, this is it. She's going to see this through. (laughs) I think everyone was tending to think, well, you know, you've done your best, but at some stage you're, you're going to have to just throw in the towel because it's going to be too hard. Surely this is just going to be too hard for you. But I kind of thrived on that adversity and thought, well, I'm, I'm just going, I'm just going to prove you all wrong. And so it was a case of being completely fearless, being driven. And at, at the time Bailey came along, because you have to be organised and you have to be more regimental with your time when you have a child. So um, she really helped me. She she literally regulated me so that I was just immediately more organised, definitely more focused and um, just just determined to, to completely see it through. And it, then it, it just didn't become enough for me to just see it through in terms of, all oh, right, well, now I've got a law degree. What am I going to do? Uh, it, it, after that, it was right. Well, now I'm I'm going to the bar. Mm-hmm. You know, let's let's do this. Do you think that the structures that you created for yourself and Bailey in your twenties, do mm. you see those still in existence now, in terms of how you work? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, because in a criminal practice, you are spinning loads of plates. You are putting out loads of fires constantly. Um, for example, the trial that I've, I'm doing on Monday, I'm doing a trial on Monday in the court martial centre. I've just learned that one of our very key witnesses has now turned hostile and is not prepared to come to court. So I've had to deal with that this morning. And there are other sort of issues that just keep emerging. Solicitors, if you're defending, want... Um, you to respond to emails as do the CPS when you're prosecuting. Someone wants an advice from you as to, you know, a piece of new evidence that comes in. And so I'm a massive fan of lists. I think it's so important to just be, and this is something that I, I used to do when when Bailey was very young, is to basically document the things that I need to do on any given day so that I make sure that everything's covered um, because (laughs) otherwise all of the things that I need to get done will never get done. From being at university and being so regimental with my time and and organised, that's something that I've definitely taken into my practice. And even now, you know, that's what I do so that I can make sure that everything I need to get done gets done there's so much there's just so much and how do you i mean your your practice is incredibly all consuming i think both in terms of the subject matter what you're dealing with the you know juries um witnesses turning hostile just every facet of it seems to me it can be all consuming and i'm thinking about for instance not just the case on monday that you're talking about but also i was reading about a case that you did back in december 2021 about a historic child cruelty and administering mm. noxious substance case involving yeah. um scotch bonnet peppers and, and chili powder yeah. and ginger 
um, being inserted into the genitals of a of a baby daughter. I guess the question that I'm really asking is, you love the work that you do. That's quite clear. But how do you make sure that you don't burn out from from it? That's a very good question. <laughs> and it's something that as criminal barristers particularly is prevalent, really, because we are basically run ragged in our practice. And so I think being, in terms of burning out, just being very strict with my time in terms of what is work time and what is downtime, because doing those sorts of cases, you know, cases with vulnerable witnesses, vulnerable victims, uh, sex cases involving children, it is very easy for it to be all-consuming because of the content that you are dealing with. Uh, And so I am very strict with myself about taking time out. And if it means that someone has to wait for me to provide them with you know, a response to something that they've asked for, well, then that's that's what's got to happen. Because as barristers, I think what we don't do enough is to take care of our own well-being because of the pressure that we are under, you know, quite constantly, particularly at the criminal bar. Sometimes our own well-being takes a bit of a backseat. So I've always tried to ensure that I have proper downtime and I'm able to switch off so that it it makes me come back stronger if I've had the opportunity just to completely switch off from work for a day or so and just you know do things that I enjoy rather than continually work because it's so easy to just concentrate on the work you're doing rather than concentrating on ourselves, something that we need to definitely do more. And is that something as literal as as saying, for instance, after the trial that you will have done next week, you know, looking mm-hmm. looking to your future self, booking out a few days after that as as downtime? Or what, what does that practically look like? Absolutely. Well, definitely. The t- after the trial, I've actually booked a holiday for the week after because it's the May bank holiday. So I'm having a couple of um, days off after that. It can it can literally be either booking a bit of a break or just penciling in an afternoon to just watch absolute trash on TV. <laughs> you know, I'm a massive fan of just, um, <laughs> you know, I love things like The Real Housewives of Beverly Hills, Love Island, I'm a bit of a fan of. Mm-hmm. It's, it, and it's the sort of thing quite frankly, when you do the sort of cases that I do, that you just want to switch off and watch something that's quite mind-numbing. So um, it's, you know, I don't don't have to, I don't feel as though my downtime has to include me doing sort of extreme sports or, you know, I like going to the gym and things like that and going running, but I don't feel as though I need to book some activity to be able to just do things that will completely allow me to switch off just a just an afternoon off maybe going and seeing friends 
having a drink, you know, and um, and being able to stop thinking about work. That's what I think. That's what as as, as criminal barristers, particularly, we need to just try and do more of because if someone has to wait for a day or two for an advice, that's not going to be the end of the world. But if we don't look after our own well-being and mental health, that's going to have a more serious impact on us. And it's, it's, just, it's just not worth it. At the end of the day, it is a job. And our health should, it should be, you know, we should view our health more importantly than, than a lot of us do. And knowing what you know now about this job and its demands and and also the you know frankly the financial difficulties that come particularly with the criminal bar and and during the pandemic um is there anything that you'd tell your younger self i think i think probably self but this is some something not only that i told my younger self but but that everyone yeah. was telling my younger self is that don't do crime that's what <laughs> i was that's basically what every criminal practitioner was to, you know, probably for the last 20 or 25 years, was probably told before they embarked on a criminal practice, don't do crime, do something that's more lucrative, um, uh, you know, um, because I think, I think it was, it was, people could see where the criminal bar was going. And it was a case of, well, just make your life a lot easier. And that, do you know what? That's probably what I would tell my younger self. But my younger self just wouldn't listen. And quite frankly, I don't have any regrets of going into crime. I don't think I would change a thing about my practice and how it is. it has evolved over the last 20 years because I'm proud of the work that I undertake now and um, I'm proud of the trajectory that I've done in terms of the cases that I do so even though it's something I would tell my younger self my younger self was so stubborn that I probably wouldn't listen (laughs) yeah yeah I understand and I mean is there anything about the next three to five years that that scares you Gosh, there's lots of things. I mean, the the state of the criminal bar anyway scares me. And I'm hoping that um, things do change for the better um, because there are a lot of people uh, I know of so many junior barristers, capable junior criminal barristers who are just leaving. And um, they're leaving because of the working conditions and... um, the situation with uh, at fees that it's just not sustainable that's a real concern because if we manage at this stage at the moment there's um uh, the criminal bar are taking action and, and hopefully if we are successful in that action the criminal bar is a great place to be but we need to overcome that first that's a that so that's a concern in terms of the next three to five years. For me personally, obviously I've taken silk. <laughs> There's a huge expectation. And it's something I put pressure on myself as well to do well and to excel in the work that I do. So there is, I mean, there's a, there's a sort of internal pressure that I put on myself to ensure that I live up to the expectations that I think perhaps people have 
in terms of why well this person's a silk you know she must be x y or z you know i just feel as though there is that sort of pressure that i put on myself as to how i should perform so that's something that i i find a bit scary but also quite exciting i'm i'm really excited to get stuck in to um this sort of cases that i'll sort of inevitably get now being a silk so it's a case of fear and excitement mm. what are those specific expectations that you think other people have of you now that you're silk gosh i i think well being a silk is a you know getting that getting that appointment you have to have demonstrated excellence so, and I'm sure it's just an internal pressure that I'm putting on myself that I have to now be in every single case, which is what I strive to be, is to essentially just be always putting my best foot forward, which is, you know, and it it, it, it feels crazy to me because it's what I always do, but I just feel as though everyone's sort of going to be watching to ensure that that happens. It's one of those things where, you know, that a lot of people have imposter syndrome, mm. that you've, you, you're just sort of constantly thinking, gosh, you're gonna get that tap on the shoulder at some point where you're, you know, it's been realized, oh, there's been some horrible mistake, um, which clearly there hasn't been, but it's quite, it's an unreasonable, so you know, imposter syndrome is really uh, um, an un, are these unreasonable thoughts that people have, and I know so many, you know, really brilliant barristers that that have it, and I think it's just something we we should shake off, because quite frankly, I know that I've got to the stage where I am through hard work, but showing consistent excellence in the cases of substance that I've done. Yeah. So it's 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 just really annoying the sort of thoughts that that we have. I know a lot of a lot of female barristers that that have those thoughts as well. Which um, we just need to just shake off and get on with it, because uh, you know, as you say, and as I've said, I've got here, I've got to this stage. It hasn't happened by accident. I always had the idea that. The longer you do this job, or when you when you finally take silk, right? Because you've deserved it, because you worked yeah. so hard for it. That's mm. when the relief will come. And what I'm hearing you say is, no, it, it never vanishes. How do you deal with it? Well, I said constant. It's it's not constant. I mean, that's just that's being a bit dramatic. No, but, I think that, that that's probably my word. But um, no, no, I said it's you have this constant feeling of you're going to get a tap on the shoulder. I mean, it's not constant, but no, I know what you mean. It's you know, it it happens sometimes, and then you just have to sort of tell yourself, well, stop being so ridiculous. <laughs> like for example, um, in 2019, um, <clears throat> I uh, got into two hair court, um, and. I, you know, after that, when I got into two hair court, because that's that's a fantastic criminal set, and um, there I did have this, I did have this feeling, you know, when I when I got in, it's just like, gosh, what what am I doing here? Um, because there's so many brilliant barristers at two hair court, and uh, I at first I didn't sort of think 
gosh, well, this is um, this is this is a set I can call home because I did have this sort of imposter syndrome, thinking, well, do I do I you know am I am I worthy of being at this sort of place? But it's it's hearing when I when I got there, it wasn't a case of you know hearing from from other silks who were there. It wasn't a case of if it was well when you apply for silk. It was, um, you know, this is, this is something that's going to happen. And so you, you slowly start telling yourself, oh, actually, well, well, maybe, 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 maybe I am in the right place. And then it was from growing in confidence, being there and speaking to sort of senior uh, members of chambers there. I remember I spoke to one, Leon Kazakos, who's um, a silk there. And I had sent him, this is when I was, you know, contemplating sticking an application in. And I sent him my sort of list of cases. said, oh, these are the cases that I'm thinking of putting forward. What do you think? And he was like, but they're absolute bangers. You know, go for it. And I thought, God, I mean, you know, he's right. And then, it, you know, speaking to judges and saying, you know, look, I'm, I'm thinking of uh, applying for silk. And perhaps instead of, the reaction you know i didn't think they were going to be like what well, you know what, what yeah, but they were so enthusiastically supportive that i thought well i've got to give it a go um and then putting you know the app is a very laborious process it's the longest application i ever had to fill out but i i actually felt because i had so much support from because you have to you have to provide up to 36 referees and you realize when you're making the application that it really pays to have been courteous and polite uh, to everyone that you've encountered in your practice because for those 12 cases, you have to, you know, put forward 12 cases of substance. You have to name, you know, the um, the barrister who you were against, the judge who was in the case and the solicitor who instructed you. So you really have to go through your career, which is something, thankfully, I've done being nice to everyone and being courteous to everyone, having humility. Um and so it's a really it's a really labor intensive process but but because i had so much support i actually felt really confident about it i did feel quite optimistic and confident about my chances so it wasn't as frightening for me i didn't find it as frightening which was you know which was a really nice feeling one of the things that you've talked about um both here and and in some of the articles I've read about you is is that when you came to Two Hair Court, you you talk mm. about being groomed for silk and you've mentioned the support that you've you've been given. What I mean, yeah, what are we talking about specifically when we talk about support? Was there a, a like a, a program or were you being coached towards making the application for silk? What did it look like? Yeah, no, it wasn't really anything formal. It was just a case of you know, when I arrived there, well, you know, when you're ready, just let us know. And so um, because we have we have so many fantastic and supportive silks there, when I was ready and when I considered, all right, well, maybe I'll, you know, throw in an application. I went to one particular silk who 
and I think this was a conversation we had on a Sunday afternoon um, and we chatted for about an hour and a half about the process, about the pitfalls, um, about how to best fill in the form, about which referees to approach. And so it was like I was, my hand was held in terms of, you know, knowing exactly what to prepare myself for and um then it was it was made very clear to me because you, i i didn't tell everyone that i was applying i just told a select few but it was made very clear to me that uh, anyone who i wanted to approach for help was willing to give me the help and the way my practice um developed at two hair court is that i wasn't doing you know warned list cases where cases um uh, a warned list in criminal courts it's given you know cases are sometimes given a three-week period where cases could come in and say if the barrister's not available it would get returned to someone else so uh, historically that's the sort of work that i was doing in my previous set where if i had a gap in my diary I would get a warned list case put in my diary. That doesn't happen at Two Hair Court. And when I got there, it was a bit of a shock. So I was seeing gaps in my diary, you know, small gaps in my diary that weren't there before. But it's those small gaps in your diary where you take the time and you really have the time to prepare your other cases so well. And so those gaps, whereas I was sort of scratching my head thinking, oh, my goodness, I'm not in court. You know, I, I was really worried. It's that those gaps are really important. And that's exactly how a silk practice is run as well, where you have those gaps in your diary, where you have the time to commit to all of your other cases, to be able to pr prepare them properly Um and so that's why, literally from the time that I got there, and that's how my practice then started developing, and the quality of my work obviously went up as well. It's from being there that, you know, I felt like I was being groomed for Silk, not only in the way my practice was now run, but the mentoring that other Silks in Chambers gave to me, because they were all really supportive in, in, um, in me applying. Um, so it, it, you know, it really helped, it really helped. One of the other areas where you talked about being given support or, or life being made manageable for you is, is back at the start of your career at the bar, which is mm. pupillage. Because at that point, I think you mentioned Bailey, your daughter was about two. You she was. You start pupillage yeah. and you've, you've referred to it as being that, that it was made manageable. And what kind of things were, were, put in place for you at that time that that made it manageable well my um pupil master at the time who's a judge now david um tomlinson um he he knew from from the start that i had caring responsibilities and um i remember during my first week um that bailey was actually ill so oh, no. um, i know it's that's a great start and so um it was just a case of, um, you know, he allowed me to have, I think, a, a day or two off. And he would always 
um, ensure that I was able to, if she hadn't, you know, throughout those six months, if she had medical appointments, um, that I was able to go to those, or if there were any other commitments, you know, associated with having a young child, there was just no question, you know, of course, just go there, meet me at court later or or, or the next day. So it just, it really, I, I just felt so lucky that he was really understanding in helping me to manage my time properly and to juggle, you know, being a single parent and a, uh, and a pupil barrister, you know, which is a really stressful time. And at that stage, 20 years ago, the pupillage award, as you know, for as it was for a lot of chambers, it wasn't, it wasn't so, you know, it wasn't massive. And so there were times, I mean, it was, it was clear, there were times where I just couldn't afford to go to certain courts that he was going to, say, if he was traveling outside of London, maybe going to Luton or Maidstone, and it would cost a lot more money to travel there earlier on in the morning either. And it was, you know, he was so understanding and it was the sort of thing we didn't really need to speak about. He, he just seemed to know. And so there were times where he'd just say to me, well, you know, if you just come after 9.30, you can get a cheaper ticket or, you know, perhaps if you just go and sit in your local court um, and you can watch some cases there. So it was just just the whole process in my first six months was just it was it was actually a bit of a dream because he just made it a lot easier for me um, uh, that you know than otherwise would be the case. It was it was a real personal touch um, that has literally stayed with because now I'm a pupil supervisor and it's literally stayed with me you know how helpful he was to me and I've never I've never forgotten about that how how he made it um just so manageable for me and you know I'm just so grateful to him for it okay last few questions um your definition of personal success what was it when you first started well when I first started what I thought would make me successful um is you know addressing a jury that was something that I thought right when I first do my first jury trial it's as though I've made it you know when I'm doing an opening speech or if I'm cross-examining a witness that you know that's it I've done it I'm a criminal barrister I have made it and <laughs> I you know I don't think that's really changed I think perhaps the forum and sometimes the location of where I do my trials makes me feel like, okay, I'm doing all right. Because I think when I first addressed jury at the Old Bailey, my first um, trial at the Old Bailey was a rape trial. And it was one that um, attracted quite a lot of media attention. And so when I saw my name in the paper saying, Nekarakadulu, prosecuting at the old bay told the old bailey jury it was just like oh well this is all right isn't it um so <laughs> yeah. you know and obviously it showed my parents and it was just like right well okay this is this is this is where i wanted to get to my first trial at the old bailey was a rape case 
and it was reported in the paper because the defendant had impersonated a premiership footballer. Oof. And so that had sort of, you know, that had got, got a bit more press. And um, so, yeah, once that was reported, it was like, oh, this is, yeah, this is all right. I think I'm, you know, I, I'm my career is going in the direction that I wanted it to. And now that you've taken Silk, what what's your personal definition of success now? You know, in the context of what you were saying as well with this commitment to excellence. Yeah, I mean, it's it's going to be, um, you know, I'm confident. Really, you know, the, the sort of serious cases that I've been doing, but leading in them. So um, rather than now being a junior in a murder trial, I am now commander in chief. I'm the person that's leading the operation. Um, and so the person with overall responsibility um, for it and as as well putting putting the work situation or side of it um to one side what as well um will be success for me is being able to increase diversity particularly in leadership roles at the bar because um it's a case of not definitely not getting in and shutting the door behind me. It's a case of getting in and being able, hopefully, to hold the door to others to attain um, this level of seniority and more, you know, because we are black, black females, particularly, particularly underrepresented in the judiciary. So um, that 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 is something I'm aiming to be part of my success. That my the visibility in people seeing how I have managed to achieve this, you know, from having no A levels um, to getting to where I am now, it's that visibility. I hope that it's going to um, encourage others not only to join the bar, but uh, getting up to this sort of level. I hope that becomes part part of my success. I really hope so. Thank you so much, Nick Akadu. Thank you. You're welcome. A massive thank you to the Honourable Society of Grey's Inn for making this podcast possible. If you enjoyed listening to this or any of the other episodes, please do share them with anyone you think might also be interested in listening. And please stay tuned for the next episode.